Welcome to On Air, a podcast from the Air community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Welcome to the eighth episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Today with us, we have Adi Basel, Associate Professor from Tel Aviv University in Israel. Hi, Adi. Hi. I am Ulrich Staffbohm. And I'm Cheng Ding. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Adi, uh, your laboratory in Tel Aviv focuses on gene editing and engineering T-cells and B-cells for cancer and autoimmunity. Could you tell us a little bit about sort of how you got into what you're into and what is it that fascinates you about um, engineering these T-cells and B-cells? So I was interested from very early on in my career with genome editing technologies. I actually started this in uh, yeast using genome editing to learn about DNA repair mechanisms, but then has have moved to Stanford, to Marquet's laboratory, to use genome editing for gene therapy of rare monogenic diseases. And then when I started my lab at Tel Aviv University, I've shifted gears and am now using similar technologies based on genome editing and viral vectors, but now in the context of immunotherapy, engineering T-cells and B-cells to fight cancer, autoimmune disease, and more. So um, you have a recent paper in Nature Biotechnology. Actually, you have two uh, recent papers, but one of them is about engineering B-cells to produce broadly neutralizing um, HIV antibodies. Can you tell us a little bit about what did you do in this paper? So m many people engineer T-cells. We thought it could be a good idea to try and engineer the additional arm of our adaptive immune system, B-cells. B standing, of course, for best, best cells. By engineering B cells, we hope to uh, allow them to secrete desired antibodies, and in other contexts also to serve as antigen-presenting uh, cells and elicit a full-blown immune response. Our first proof of concept was made in the context of uh, HIV gene therapy. A previous paper from our lab in 2020 has shown that we can engineer B-cells to express anti-HIV broadly neutralizing antibodies and then adoptively transfer these engineered B-cells into mice and by modeling an HIV infection using immunization with HIV antigens, we could show that these adoptively transferred B-cells can react to the antigen retain memory, and secrete large amounts of the desired antibody. Now, in our 2022 Nature Biotech publication, we show that we can, in fact, engineer these B-cells in vivo. 
inside the body of the patient. Well, for now, inside the body of the mouse. And we do that using viral vectors. So these used to be viruses, but we have learned as a scientific community how to engineer them so that they can no longer replicate in our bodies, but can still serve as vehicles to bring the desired genes into desired cells. In this particular case, bring antibody coding genes into B cells inside our body. But not only antibody coding genes, we use two AVs. AV is the viral vector. One AV codes for the broadly neutralizing antibody, whereas the other AV codes for a CRISPR system based on SACAS9, Cephoruscas9, a shorter version of the more uh, known SPCAS9. And this Cas9, together with guide RNA, cleaves the desired locus within B cells and allows the introduction of the antibody into that locus. From that on, the B cells can react to antigens, secrete the antibody, retain memory, and more. So how, how did you get the, um, these, these uh, gene products into the cells? Do, does this happen ex vivo or is that um, in vivo? So in our recent publication, the engineering is in vivo. We inject the mice systemically with two AVs, two viral vectors, one coding for the broadly neutralizing antibody and the other coding for the CRISPR system that cleaves the genome and initiates the integration of the broadly neutralizing antibody gene into the desired locus within B cells. In particular, into the IgH locus, the immunoglobulin heavy locus. And we are engineering the antibody into the immunoglobulin heavy locus for several important reasons. The first is that by using this locus, we can have the antibody expressed first as a membrane-anchored protein, a B-cell receptor, allowing the B-cell, when interacting with antigen, to be activated, proliferating, and differentiating. And only in some of the progeny becoming plasma blasts and plasma cells is the antibody secreted. And this um, move from being a membrane-anchored protein to being a secreted protein is facilitated by a very intricate regulation within the IgH locus. So that's why we have to go into the IgH locus. In that locus, there's a, an alternative polyadenylation site, which in plasma cells excludes the last exons that usually anchor the protein to the membrane. So only upon differentiation into plasma cells are these exons excluded and the antibody can be secreted. So that's the first important reason why we have to use genome editing and integrate the antibody into the immunoglobulin heavy locus. So there are two additional important reasons. Yet another important reason is that the immunoglobulin heavy locus allows for class switch recombination. So the antibody is first expressed as an IgM isotype, but then in some of the progeny, 
can also undergo class switcher combination, giving rise to IgG antibodies, IgA antibodies, IgG antibodies. And in different contexts, this might be very important. For example, in HIV, you might want to have mucosal defense, not only systemic defense, so vaginal, anal defense, and that in part is conveyed by IgA antibodies. So class with your combination is important, and that's a second reason why we're integrating into the immunoglobulin heavy locus. And the third reason is fascinating. In the immunoglobulin heavy locus, there's yet another process going on, and that's somatic hypermutation. Somatic hypermutation brought about by the same enzyme, AID, that causes class switch recombination. But here it introduces mutations that later serve as the substrate for subsequent affinity maturation. A Darwinian evolution occurring within our spleen and in our lymph node, selecting for the very best B cells that best interact, have the best affinity to the antigen, and therefore allows for the defense against the antigen to improve in time, especially when uh, counteracting a virus that can escape by itself mutating. So it's an, it's an arms race. As the HIV mutates to escape our initially encoded antibody, so can the B cell counter mutate and evolve in order to have high affinity even to diverse uh, HIV coming from the initial infection. Adi, that is, that's really interesting and, and very strategic. <laughs> um, it, so what I'm hearing is you, 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 in, you intentionally selected you know, a very early lo uh, locus that's important for the early process of B cell um, maturation decision makings in terms of what that uh, antibody response should be, um, whether that's going to be converting to a plasma site or, uh, or a plasma blast. And, and allowing all of the different isotype as well. Um, but then a question that comes to my mind is, is this an assumption that you are, uh, I guess, providing this therapy for a patient that has a very active infection? Because you, you right, to, to get all of those signals to do the class switching, the somatic hypermutations, you'd want to write active germinal centers. So I guess, what are you actually envisioning? Is this more of a preventative or a therapeutic? So while I think it can also be a preventive measure, I would not guess this would be the first clinical application of the approach, if only because of the uh, price and complexity and scalability of providing prophylaxis to the general population. However, for HIV-infected individuals who are now, at least in the Western world, are taking antiretroviral therapy, which allows them to have prolonged uh, low viremia and a recovery, partial recovery of their immune system, one can envision a clinical trial in which the patient are under controlled um, art um, cessation, so you stop antiretroviral therapy for a period of time, during which you provide the gene therapy, and then you monitor the level of the antibody, 
desired antibody in the blood of these patients. And if the level is high enough, you can allow them uh, to uh, not return to art. You can monitor the viremia. And if the viremia doesn't go up itself, then the treatment was successful. But if we had failed, if the antibodies levels are not sufficient, or if the viremia uh, rises its head, then one can go back to antiretroviral therapy. So we have the prospect, we have the hope of providing a long-lasting cure of the infection. However, we also have a backup, a safety net. So if we fail, the patient can get back to antiretroviral therapy. Out of curiosity, what, what made you choose HIV as the first uh, indication to, for uh, B-cell gene therapy? Yeah, so um, B-cells and antibodies have evolved to counteract uh, infections, and HIV is a major problem, and there's still a great unmet need. In part, this, ungrate, unmet, this great unmet need comes from the fact that there's no vaccine, and there's no efficient vaccine because of the HIV mutating and escaping uh, any uh, immune response. So our hope was that if we could have a very good starting point, start with a broadly neutralizing antibody that is already efficient and binds many types of HIV. And from that, we further allow somatic hypermutation and affinity maturation then hopefully the combination of these two, the broadly neutralizing antibody and the affinity maturation would allow us to confer long-lasting uh, remedy. I, I, let me, sorry, let me re rephrase my question is, I think when I first read uh, this, your paper, I had two immediate thoughts, which is, it, it, as, you, as you initially said about, you know, people have been making CAR-Ts and, and now why not make kind of not CAR Bs, but but um, cell th gene therapy for B cells uh, relative to T cells, right? The, the the drawback is is there's always this risk of cytotoxicity versus for B cells, not so much maybe, but it is to be seen. And, and so it's a very curious in terms of you know why you went after an infectious model versus an oncology model, or or is that in your future uh, sight lines? It's it's my it's not my future. It's my present. Uh, so we have established a company who is now uh, using the same technology also in the field of oncology uh, with some emphasis on uh, tumors that come from viral infections, HPV, HBV, MCV, because there the antigen is a foreign antigen. So the elicitation of an immune response via the engineered B cells uh, does not have to face tolerance. Um, we are also working in my academic laboratory on CAR B cells, which hope to uh, circumvent the need for uh, T cell help. And therefore, these CAR B cells may be able to uh, counteract uh, tumors that are associated with self-antigens, so where tolerance is expected. I'm wondering if, since you already start with a neutralizing antibody, why is it not possible to, to optimize this antibody um, in the laboratory and then just produce 
a lot of antibodies that you can inject into the patients. Wouldn't this be an, an alternative approach? I, I guess you would make more money with this as a company. Yeah, so there are uh, quite a few uh, academic labs and also several companies who are using B cells as factories, just producing one type of uh, protein for rare monogenic diseases or antibodies. And in fact, for the production of antibodies, um, different laboratories and companies have previously used the muscle and the liver to produce the antibody. It's an approach now called vectored immunoprophylaxis. And there's a recent uh, report of a successful uh, phase one trial with this approach. It also has limitations. So if it's a single antibody, the virus might mutate and escape this defense. Uh, moreover, if the antibody is further expressed from muscle or from liver, it might not be uh, naturally glycosylated, and this increases the risk of anti-drug antibodies, and this has been seen in several cases previously. So we hope that by engineering the immunoglobulin heavy locus in B cells, we allow for somatic hypermutation and affinity maturation, as well as for class switch recombination and for memory retention, and that it is the combination of all these different factors together that will provide the best defense. I'm pretty naive towards viral vectors, but I have heard that one of the drawbacks was um, an anti-viral vector response where you can't have multiple treatments. Is that, a, is that still an issue or, or have you figured out a way to get around that? Uh, it's, it's even worse. So not only can you not give a second injection, but many of us have pre-existing antibodies against these viral vectors, which sometimes too often prevent even the first administration. Um, so we, as well as many other groups around the world, are working on ways to uh, mitigate this. I'm not sure we can eliminate it altogether, but to mitigate to some extent this concern. Uh, there are some ways to reduce the, uh, uh, the, these anti-vector antibodies in the blood, at least temporarily. There are ways to design the vectors and shield them, at least to some extent, or to choose such vector capsids that are less prone for these uh, antibody responses. Uh, but no, no perfect answer now. So this is still a big challenge for us and, and for the field. So are there any safety issues regarding these approaches? There are several safety issues. Um, so the immune responses are not only neutralizing, neutralizing immune responses uh, only hinder your efficacy, but there are also adverse immune responses that have an effect on safety. And we have seen such adverse immune responses starting from the 90s against adenovectors and more recently also against AAV vectors as the ones that I had used in my own report. And this will first, we, we should be advised to be cautious, but more specifically use them in uh, lower titers, and also with additional immune mitigations. These might be steroids or uh, other additives that uh, reduce the initial 
immune response for a window of time around the injection of the viral vector. In addition to these immune-related safety issues, there are issues with the use of nucleases, in our case, CRISPR nucleases. And as you've mentioned, we also had a second Nature Biotechnology paper, this time serving as our own devil's advocate and turning the spotlight to the risks of using nucleases not only in their off-target effects, they don't only cleave where you want them to cleave, but also when they cleave where you want them to cleave, the cleavage is not always repaired in the way that you would want it to be repaired. Sometimes it's not repaired at all, and the chromosome is left unrepaired, and in the next cell division, large chromosomal chunks and even entire chromosomes can get lost. And this is what we've shown in our second Nature Biotechnology paper, uh, showing frequent aneuploidy in T-cells being cleaved by CRISPR, and the same would be true also for B-cells being cleaved by CRISPR. So we should look for alternatives for viral vectors, that was our previous point, and also for alternatives to nucleases and find better ways to integrate the uh, payload in an efficient and yet more safe way. So in the beginning, you talked when you talked about the, the vector that you used, you talked about how you make sure that it integrates into, into the great site of, of the B cells. But still, this site exists in all sorts of other cells. Does this pose a problem? And I'm thinking actually in particular, if you would want to go and modify T cells, you might want to modify T-Rex to handle some autoimmune disease or effector T-cells for something else. So how do you think this can be solved? Yes, specificity can be uh, conferred in several levels. What we did in the paper is to confer specificity only at the level of the expression. We provide that the Cas9 under the control of a B-cell specific promoter. So it was expressed only in B-cell. The transgene still arrived at other cell types and we could detect it in the liver and other tissues. However, the Cas9 was not expressed and therefore there was little to no integration in other tissues. But one can also confer selectivity by introducing moieties to the capsid of the vector or in other types of viral vectors that have envelope also to the membrane of the vector. And these moieties can be either antibodies or DARPINs to direct the vector to be uh, transducing only desired cell types. Are there differences um, or challenge, different challenges or advantages with targeting T cells versus B cells? Yes, yeah, so for targeting B cells, we had to bear in mind that B cell activation also requires T-cell help and therefore must avoid tolerance. And we therefore chose to target a foreign antigen such as a viral antigen. When targeting T-cells, often in order to express a CAR, a chimeric antigen receptor, these the activation of CAR T-cell um, is less prone to tolerance and it can react against self-antigens, which is 
sometimes an advantage in the field of oncology. Not always. It's also a source for concern. But several of the antigens that are uh, commonly being targeted in the field of oncology are self-antigens. And this can be done with CAR T-cells. And it is more challenging to do so with B-cells. There is an advantage in targeting both B-cells and T-cells when you compare that to other cell types. And that is that, at least in theory, you can engineer a very small initial population of cells to later be um, increased exponentially upon binding of the antigen. And that is true for T cells and B cells, but might not be the case for many other cells of interest. So I think that uh, the concept of in vivo engineering should be uh, exemplified first in B cells and T cells before moving to other more challenging cell types. So you get a broader perspective on uh, B and T cell receptors in, in the clinic. Do which areas do you see can benefit uh, immediately from 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 your work in the near and far future? So we are working in the lab not only on infectious diseases and now in the company also in oncology, but also on autoimmune diseases, allergy, and much more. So I think the range of clinical indications in which these technologies can have an impact is a very wide range. And the impact will be even bigger if we are successful in increasing the scalability by providing it as in vivo therapy rather than adoptive transfer of ex vivo engineered cells. Because the ex vivo engineering and the adoptive transfer are cumbersome, time-consuming, and very expensive. So it is a major goal of my lab to provide better ways for in vivo engineering of both B cells and T cells. So yes, essentially saying once you get the the technical issue solved, then all you need to know is a good starting point for at least a B cell receptor, which you would then um, inject and you'll just need a couple of hits, a few hits in, of, in B cells, and then uh, the immune system will essentially take care of the rest. And with this, you can solve many different problems. Yeah, well, we did some uh, back calculations showing that we may have engineered less than 200 cells in the body of the mouse initially. But of course, getting exponentially much more than that after encountering the antigen, which in our case was through immunizations. In the patient, it might be through the natural infection by HIV. So yes, we, we need very low initial efficiencies to get a very powerful impact. Is there a way to track those original parental engineered cells? Do you have is it like a sequence specific that you can track from uh, like BCR sequencing? So we we have done a phylogenetic analysis of the uh, mutated and selected antibody sequences in the spleen of the treated mice. And we could build the phylogenetic trees showing uh, how the 
sequences have changed from the original sequence, uh, both in their variable part as well as in their choice of isotype. So from original IgM into a different isotypes, and within these also uh, specific mutations, some of which having been selected for being within the uh, important uh, interaction domains between the antibody and its cognate antigen. That's, that's a really interesting um, analysis. Have you compared that with the, um, the native, I guess, B cells of the mice? And is that the somatic hypermutation or that phylogenetic tree, do they differ? Is, you know, I guess the, the, the question I'm trying to ask is, is the potential of these engineered cells similar or different from the original B cells? That's a very good question. Uh, I'm not sure that I have a good answer. I, uh, we have not compared it, and I'm not sure how to normalize such a comparison, but perhaps there are ways. There are people who are uh, better experts than me in this particular field. Um, but intriguing, I'll, I'll give it more thought. Thank you. Yeah, I guess I was thinking, because you're engineering that initial B cell receptor so you can compare, right? So then your native immune response would be polygenic, but then you find the but ones My that hypothesis mm -hmm. is that once engineered, the engineered B cells act as if it were a native B cell. But how to prove this hypothesis um, using these sequencing methods may not be trivial. To show that the uh, potential of undergoing somatic hypermutation is at the same level, because what we're seeing is the superimposition of mutation and selection. Right? We, we don't have, uh, I mean, th there are ways, but they are not trivial. I mean, one should look for the neutral uh, evolution, right? Look at this, the synonymous mutations in one way or another. Th th there are ways, but um, I will stop here because we are stepping outside of my expertise, but still very interesting and things that need further, further thought. I look forward to the, to hearing about it in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this may also be outside of your expertise a bit, but at least uh, I'm, I'm asking for your for your thoughts. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, on fully utilizing B-cell receptor uh, repertoires for clinical purposes? So in, in broadly speaking. So it is outside of my expertise, but it is of great interest to me. So I think that the B-cell repertoire repertoire that is associated with tumors, either within tertiary lymphoid structures or in the draining lymph nodes, uh, can tell us a lot uh, about the progression of the tumor and perhaps also using some sophisticated selection techniques allow us to find what the antigens are and devise therapies, either vaccines or therapies that uh, rely on the antibody sequences, such as monoclonal antibodies, bi-specific antibodies, chimeric antigen receptors, and more. So I think there it's, while there are quite a few papers, still an uncharted ter territory, much more to be elucidated, a lot to be learned from these B-cell repertoires. And how do you think we can get to such a point then where we can more better use B-cell receptor repertoires? 
So I, I think the problem is not getting the data, it is making sense of that data. So we and many other laboratories around the world are collecting uh, B cells that are associated with tumors and are conducting the B cell repertoire uh, analysis. And you get a lot of data. But then what do you do with it? How, how do you make sense of it? How do you make this into therapies? How do you choose the antibodies to be uh, screened for the therapeutic potential or be used to find the uh, antigens to be targeted by vaccination? Um, a very interesting field. If, if I were a, a younger scientist, I would go into this field. I think it, uh, the, it has a bright future. You earlier alluded to using these engineered B cells, in vivo engineered B cells, you know, the, the obvious indications are infections, diseases, and oncology, but you also mentioned autoimmune diseases. When you mentioned that, that piqued my interest because I'm not really, I haven't really heard about engineered B cells for autoimmunity. How do you envision that to work? And that there are several different flavors. The one, uh, monoclonal antibodies are being used now for different autoimmune diseases. Umira being the obvious uh, um, example. And instead of taking uh, Umira time and again, one can uh, engineer a B cell to secrete it. And we have B cells in the lab engineered to secrete Umira. Uh, yet another approach called uh, CAR, which is uh, um, targeting specific uh, B cells that are pathologic. So B cells that secrete undesired antibodies can themselves be targeted by antibodies coming from other B cells or targeted by CARs. These, these are called CARs. That's another flavor. Uh, yet another thing that we are looking at is allergy. Allergies mediated uh, in part by IgE B cells. And these B cells can themselves be targeted either by antibodies coming from other B cells or by CAR T cells targeting the IgE B cells. And more and more. We, uh, there are many different applications of, of this project. So you're, 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 you're basically using the, the engineered B cells as a in vivo antibody production. Yes, but in many different contexts. What do you see as the, the immediate kind of roadblocks to, to overpass before engineered B cells become more of an adopted therapeutic strategy? I would first like to uh, address the safety issues. So I think we as a community should go in vivo because of scalability. We need to reach a broad population of patients. But it comes with a price. If you go in vivo, there are questions of biodistribution. There are questions of where your CRISPR goes to, where your antibody goes to. And these have to be carefully addressed. And in some cases, alternatives need to be made so that uh, the current strategy might not be safe enough, but upon modification, it might suffice. And we've discussed some of these. So perhaps additional modifications to the capsids perhaps alternative to the nuclease, perhaps uh, transcription control that is better tuned to allow expression only in desired cell types and more. So going in vivo, yes, but uh, 
addressing the many safety issues that comes with it. I guess maybe we can take a step back what we didn't talk about at the beginning, um, and this is more about your background, Adi. So you meant, you know, we were, when we were reading your background, um, you, you seem to have a very diverse experience, you know, right? You're in academia, you have, you founded two companies. Um, could you speak a bit about that, sort of your journey into, and your experience? From early in my career, um, it disturbed me that uh, scientists end their uh, papers with uh, a discussion saying this might be used for, but nobody ever does anything with it. So it was clear to me that if I wanted something to be done with my results, I have to make it happen. So when I had a good result, I first uh, um, took care of the intellectual property. That's the first roadblock and then uh, addressed uh, different investors, start a company, uh, our first company, Logic Biotherapeutics, um, later went public and is now in clinical trials in children with methylmalonic acidemia in the near future also other indications. And our second recently founded uh, company uses the B-cell engineering technology now in oncology and in particular in viral induced tumors. And I hope that this will allow me to bring also this second technology into the patient in need. Yeah, that's a really good reason. Yeah, I, I totally write, even when you're writing for myself, writing many papers, it's yes, this uh, discovery could be used as a therapeutic potential for XYZ, and then that's it. It's like a standard statement for all papers. This brings us to the end of the eighth episode of On Air, the podcast of the AIR community with special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Please go to the website antibodysociety.org to get more information about our sponsors. If you have any questions or comments, drop us a line at onair at air hyphen community.org that's on air with two r's or tweet us with the hashtag on air thank you for talking with us uh, adi thank you very much we will return in one month's time with more thoughts about the clinical use of air sequencing the next installment of the iReceptor similar series will be with mike stubbington from 10x genomics so that should be really interesting all links and uh, contact information are in the show notes here the podcast is edited by abdul assis of the amusing podcast sprout law thank you for listening to on air <laughs>